And uh, I hope that all of you had a joyous celebration of the birth of Jesus yesterday. Uh, and as the angel said, unto you is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Um, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but um, the last sermon I gave was on December 27th, a year ago. And uh, that was on Psalm 9, and one of the points in that psalm is that uh, we are to recount the wondrous deeds of the Lord. And at that time, I talked about an experience that we had in our family uh, on a mountain in Colorado. And uh, I'm going to tell the same story today. I hope that it's not too boring to any of you who have been here, who were here last time. But uh, I'm going to make some different emphases anyway. But uh, this was when our son... Our oldest child, Michael, was seven years old, and uh, we were going to climb this mountain called the West Spanish Peaks, which is in southern Colorado and is about 13,600 feet high. And uh, we had tried climbing it a few years before and, and uh, had failed, and, and I was bound to determine that I was going to make it to the top this time. So uh, I went off with my son, Michael, and Joy stayed back with our daughter, Marla, who's here today, too, who was only three or so, three or four, and our other daughter who was just about one. And so uh, we drove up to about 12,000 feet and hiked in about two miles to the base of the mountain. And the, as the mountain goes up, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's tree-lined, so there are no trees there. Uh, and it's, this is climbing. It's kind of a long, steep walk. It's not like ropes or anything. But still, it's pretty challenging for people who are in my state of physical shape. And uh, we got partway up there, pretty much, say, two-thirds of the way up, and, and Michael was saying he was, he'd had enough. He didn't really want to go any farther. Um, but I said, we're making it to the top, and I just kind of pushed on him, and uh, we made it to the top all right. And uh, while we were up there, as soon as we got there, Michael said, well, I want to go on down. I've had it. And uh, right about then, another couple came up a different way to the top, and so I stopped it. I wanted to talk to them just for a few minutes to be neighborly and said, Mike, well, you should go ahead and start on down. I'll catch up with you. So I don't think I talked with these folks for more than three minutes or something like that. It really wasn't very long because I didn't want to separate from Michael. But uh, then I headed down and uh, I didn't see him. And you know how mountains go? They're sort of like a shoulder. So as I, I couldn't quite see him, but I knew that he was just a little bit beyond that curvature of the of the mountain, so I wasn't too worried, so I walked a little bit farther. And as I got farther, I still couldn't see him. I didn't know where he was. And beyond that was a little knoll, and I figured, well, he has to be behind that knoll. And so as soon as I get uh, past that, then I'll catch up with him and things will be fine. Well, I got to the top of that knoll and looked down, and he wasn't there. And I started to get a little bit concerned, but I was pretty confident things were fine. And there was another... Uh, outcrop or another knoll that uh, I needed to go past. So I just went on uh, to that. When I got beyond that, I still couldn't find him. And this went on. I began to get kind of concerned. I started going back and forth from side to side and started calling out for his name and kept that up for a while. And then I came to one point where I, I stopped and I was just about where the trees started again. I looked back up that mountain and I knew there was no way that I could get back up there and find him. I was tired. I was, it was an exhausting uh, hike. And I wasn't in great physical shape. And I just had to admit there was just no way that I could, that I could find him. I didn't know what was going on. 
You know, I was just hopeless at that point, and almost in despair. So all I could do is, is to hike back out, and to make a long story short, it turned out that there was a, a near the mountain, sort of in the plains, uh, some people were doing some surveying in a helicopter. And we were able to get them to come up in the helicopter, and I went up with them, and we went up toward the top of the mountain, and there he was, and we, we found him, and he was okay, and we brought him down. But I guess the thing that really struck me was how helpless I was and how I needed help. I needed help from somebody else. I needed a Savior. So today we're going to talk about another Savior and uh, the beginning of his ministry, the public ministry of Jesus, who came to save us from even a worse predicament than uh, that we were on on the mountain. Let's go to John or, uh, Matthew 3 and start our reading. This is the uh, first several verses. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And, food was, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This was a pretty radical guy. You can imagine the clothes he was wearing. I, I have never eaten wild locusts or, or locusts or wild honey, but I'm not sure that I would like to do that. And... Uh, this is kind of an interesting uh, call that he was making, repent, for the kingdom of God of heaven is at hand. So let's talk a little bit about that. In the first place, there are a number of places in the Old Testament that challenge people to repent. And some of the prophets had made some statements about messiahs and some changes that would happen in the future uh, that would come under this heading of, the, of, the, kingdom of uh, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. But why is it that John chose this thing to call out? Why was this his message? Maybe he could have said something else like, uh, try harder to keep the Ten Commandments. Or, love your neighbor better than you do now. Or, uh, enter a more abundant life. Why was it that he didn't say one of those things? Why did he get into this whole repentance thing? Well, I think the reason he did that is because, like me on the mountain, people have to come to a place where they realize that they're on the wrong road. The direction they're taking just isn't going to get them where they need to get. And that's kind of what it means to repent. And that doesn't quite apply to the other things that we suggested, which even almost sometimes suggested that if we just push a little harder, do this or that, then we can pull ourselves out of this uh, situation we've got ourselves into. The second thing is, how did this message have anything to do with preparing the way for the Lord or making his, his way straight? Well, I think the reason for that is that when we do repent, we have to look for an alternative. And Jesus was the true alternative. Now, the word for repentance that uh, John the Baptist used in the Hebrew uh, has the idea of turning, about seeing something that, that's not right and turning and going a different direction. 
And it's a pretty similar idea in the Greek word, uh, which has a little, a little bit more of the idea of change in it. But change and turning are really not too different. Now, this idea of the kingdom of heaven, in the first place, uh, most commentators agree that the, word, the, the term kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew is essentially the same as the term kingdom of God in the, other, in the synoptic gospels. Uh, and that's not really talking about some place out there where God and his angels dwells. It's not very near us, but out there someplace. Um, so how is this the rationale for repenting? Well, again, it's this idea, if we're going to turn, we have to turn to something. And what we're turning to is the entry of Jesus with his life, death, and resurrection and future second coming, as well as the entry of the Holy Spirit into the life of the believer, enabling us to come into conformity with God's program in previously unavailable ways. So even though there were some things that were going on in the Old Testament, this was new. And this is one of the things that, this was a new uh, change in, in the overall plan that had been sort of hinted at in the past, but now is coming more to fruition. And I've talked a little bit about this uh, in terms of death and resurrection as part of the kingdom of heaven, which is obviously not something that John the Baptist knew about. So I'm going to kind of uh, slip sometimes away from what the people at the time of John the Baptist were talking about and some of the things that, we're gonna, that are relevant to us. We know about the death and resurrection of Jesus, and of course that's really what it all meant, but that wasn't all completely obvious to the people at John the Baptist's time. And even now there's sort of an already not yet character to the kingdom of God. And that actually is kind of a byword in, in theology about many things that are going on uh, in God's working out his plan and program in history that we may not know about, like about the second coming and so forth. Uh, that will be revealed at the appropriate times. But anyway, the key element, and one that John the Baptist uh, brought out, as we see in John 1.29, where he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is one of the key ideas, that there's someone coming, the Lamb of God, who would be the Savior uh, for mankind. Now another element about this that's sort of not explicit, but really embedded in it implicitly, is the idea of faith. Now, if we're going to turn from something, we have to turn to something, and you really have to have faith in what you're turning to. And many theologians will talk about faith and repentance as really being like two sides of the same coin. Uh, without faith, it's kind of hard to really repent, and without repentance, it's really kind of hard to have faith. So this is something that's sort of involved as well. And so this idea of the kingdom of heaven that was dawning uh, involves bringing about a change that we need uh, because of Jesus as a Savior, just like we needed a Savior or I needed a Savior on the mountain in Colorado. So this call amounted to a recognition of the need for radical transformation of the entire person through a new way that God was working in the world. And this change, uh, as I say, was involves the entire person, and there are at least three areas where that is relevant. The first is we need a, a change of mind. We need to see sin as destructive and producing death. And we see in Romans 6, 20 and 21, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
The second thing we need is a change in our feelings. We need to grieve. Uh, in James, it talks about weeping and uh, just being overwrought with grief over what we've been doing and how we've gotten on the wrong path and gone the wrong way. But it's important for us to realize that this grief isn't about us. We need to be grieving over how what we've done affects other people and has affected God. If we're only thinking about how uh, something we've done wrong affects us, it's kind of what we want us to start feeling good about ourselves again, and we're not thinking about the impact of these acts on other people. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about godly grief and worldly grief, and that godly grief produces a, a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The third thing we need to uh, think about is that uh, this change has to involve our behavior. Uh, Later on in this same passage, we'll hear the the term uh, fruit-keeping with repentance that should be a result of this uh, repentance and entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's a parallel passage in Luke uh, talking about the response of people to John the Baptist's message. And it's a little bit more detailed in this connection. It says in Luke 3, 10 through 14, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teachers, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. There's a couple other uh, uh, implications of this call to repentance and to faith uh, of John the Baptist that I think are relevant to talk about here. First is there's an element of humility. It's really pretty hard to be repentant uh, and retaining your pride. When you're rep- and when you're really repenting, you realize things have gone wrong, and this uh, inevitably leads to humility. The second thing is that there's an element of reality to this. Now, we all do things that aren't right, and commonly what we do is we excuse them or blame other people, or we minimize them, or we even hide them, so that re- we retain this appearance of... of uh, being better than we really are. So there's an element of reality that we have with repentance, and that can be very freeing. And it's also obviously an aspect of honesty uh, because we're not hiding and we're not putting on a front of some kind. And actually, because of this, it's good news. It's particularly good news because when we follow Jesus, when we repent, we can obtain forgiveness. And in fact, it's not even appropriate for us to dwell in how bad we are As Christians, when we do things that are wrong, we repent and then we uh, confess and he forgives us and then that's it. We move on from there and we don't dwell on it. We don't think how horrible we are and wallow in in that kind of self-pity. Now, repentance also implies, as we said, a change in behavior. And the, the, the big idea here probably is obedience. And instead of going our own way, we need to go God's way. 
And when we go God's way, that means obedience. But after all, who knows really what's best for us? God created us. He knows what's best for us. He loves us. We just sang a song about how much he loves us. In fact, I couldn't help but think, think of the verse in Romans 2.4, where it says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So this repentance isn't a thing from God where he comes down, he wants to jump on us and beat us on us and tell us how bad we are. Uh, but he wants us to have real life. The next thing is that repentance is the way for the Christian. This isn't something that we repent one time and that's it for the rest of our lives. Let's face it, our lives are kind of like an onion. And we repent and become a believer and follow the Lord. And some of the things that we've been doing wrong change as, as we repent and we, and we allow him to work in us. And one layer of that onion is gone and suddenly there's another layer that's there. And there are some things there that need to be dealt with. Some of them may be more subtle than the first ones were. And so we repent of those. And we work on those, and we sometimes it takes multiple repentances before we are able to overcome certain sins or certain problems. But then we finally do, and, and that layer of the onion is gone, and lo and behold, there's another layer there. So this business of re repentance has to be a, a, re a repeated way of life for us uh, as we live through the Christian life. And ultimately, uh, this whole business of repentance and faith is something that ultimately is from God. And it's his prompting that causes us to, rep to repent in the first place. It's his prompting that gives us the faith that we need to proceed. And it's his prompting and his power that al allows us to grow as a believer. Let's, uh, the last thing here is that uh, this call of John the Baptist is the same call that Jesus gave in Matthew 4.17. It's the same one that he told the, the apostles to, uh, to present in, when they were sent out two by two in Mark 6.12. And it's the same call that Peter made in, at Pentecost in Acts 2.38. Let's go on to verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, actually, these Pharisees, if you talk to the people at that time, if you ask, who are the people who are really serious about following God and keeping the commandments, they probably would, probably would have said the Pharisees. Uh, but you all know what Jesus' view was of the Pharisees and what happened with that, how he called them whited sepulchers because their problem was legalistic externalism. And they look good on the outside, but on the inside, like a grave, even though a grave is beautiful on the outside, there were dead men's bones and uncleanness inside. So probably a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees that came to John the Baptist weren't really interested in repenting, weren't interesting, really interested or believed that they needed to do anything to escape the wrath of God. Probably they wanted to find out what was going on and possibly even to mount some opposition. But there were a few of them who did uh, repent and realized that they needed to do so. And one good example is the Apostle Paul. 
Paul, of course, was uh, one of the real rising stars in Judaism of that time. He had studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He had all the right uh, curriculum vitae. He says in Philippians 3, 5, and 6 uh, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, the people of Israel, of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, that means the ones that really made a lot of effort to keep the law, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. What could be more zealous than to persecute these people who were going the wrong direction? The church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He even said he was blameless, or other people could look at him and consider him blameless by those criteria. But then what happened to him? He went on the road to Damascus. In a miraculous event, Jesus showed himself to Paul, and Paul had a real repenting experience where he realized that he needed to make a 180-degree change, which he did. He was appalled by the things that he had been doing when Jesus told him, you know, Saul, who are you persecuting? You're persecuting me. And he recognized that, uh, that this Jesus, the one who was, he was persecuting, really was the Son of God. We all know what Paul did after that, how the fruits of, the fruits of repentance uh, were displayed in his life. He also went on to say that whatever gain he had before, he counted loss for the sake of Christ, so that he would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, what is this in this passage about stones and children of Abraham and stuff? Isn't being a child of Abraham enough? Well, not according to John the Baptist. In fact, what he was saying was that people don't become children of Abraham biologically. Well, how do they become children of Abraham? And what is, what is the essence of being a child of Abraham? What's the essence of Abraham? What was the distinctive feature of Abraham? Well, if you look through the story of Abraham, and particularly as it is uh, uh, discussed in Romans 4 and in Galatians 3.9, it points out that Abraham was the man of faith. So the children of Abraham are those who have faith. And so here we have the idea of faith again going right back to repentance, right back to that original call that John the Baptist uh, was making. Going on, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In John 3.30, uh, John the Baptist makes a statement that he must increase and I must decrease. So it's really kind of interesting to look at uh, John the Baptist's view of himself. In the first place, he was humble in talking about repentance and decreasing. And when he talked about Jesus, he talked about Jesus increasing and that Jesus was such a person that he himself, who Jesus later called uh, as great a prophet as any in the past, uh, was unworthy to even carry his dirty old shoes walking through those dusty, uh, or sandals walking through those dusty roads of those days. And then he talked about the Pharisees and Sadducees in terms of vipers and snakes. The other thing about this last passage that really is striking is the idea of judgment. And that these issues John the Baptist considered to be very significant. 
Just think of the, just listen to the terms he used. He talks about the wrath to come, and the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And some of the trees are thrown into the fire, and that chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. If we don't repent and stay our own, on our own road, we're going to end up where that road leads. And that, where that road leads is dreadful misery and destruction. Going on to Jesus' baptism, uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, I'd like to just kind of put all this, what's going on now with Jesus, into context. And that context is the whole of God's program throughout history. So let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis, where God created the heavens and the earth, he created everything else, he created people. Um, <clears throat> and after he did that, he declared that they were, it was good, everything was good. And when he did create people, he created them with the image of God. And of course, we know the next step was that Adam and Eve sinned. And that had profound implications about everything else. And even though they sinned, they still retained that image of God. And yet there's this mix of the image of God and a tendency towards sin that people still have. And God wanted to do something about that. He needed to do something because they were in an a condition where they couldn't help themselves anymore. This was like me on the mountain. I needed a savior. And so God promised a savior, even as early as Genesis 3, uh, 15 and 16. <clears throat> so then you, we see the sweep of history going on. The next thing was that God selected Abraham and said, through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Kind of a... a, a a big promise, but not exactly what that meant wasn't really clear. And now, of course, we know what that meant. The next thing was that uh, God separated out the people of Israel uh, when they were in Egypt. And through Moses, led them out in the Exodus and gave them the Ten Commandments, the next big step in God's program. Another step was when the kingdom was established and the great King David was the king. And later on, uh, Israel fell into sin and went into exile in Babylon and many prophets were there that predicted this and were involved even in Babylon. Um, and eventually, the next step was what we're, where we are today, where God sent his only son to be the one who would be uh, definitively taking care of the process of sin. So we have to see, now is what the thing is happening here with Jesus' baptism and his ministry. This is what they've been waiting for. People have been waiting for since Genesis, since Adam and Eve and the process that is still going on even now and then to the second coming of Christ when uh, God and Christ will set all things right. Well, why is it that Jesus needed to be baptized? Uh, for John the Baptist, this, this had to do with repentance. Did Jesus, had Jesus sinned or anything? 
Well, we don't believe that he had. It's certainly clear from Scripture that Jesus did leave a perfect life. And in fact, the reason is given in our text. Basically, the reason he did it was because of obedience, that he was going to be obedient, even though he was the second person of the Trinity. In many areas throughout the gospel, it talks about that Jesus did or said things that he uh, learned from the Father, from his Father. Secondly, why was God pleased with Jesus? He said, with him I am well pleased. Why should he be pleased with Jesus? It doesn't seem like Jesus did all that much uh, by that point in time. I guess he was around 30 years old. We don't know much about Jesus' youth. Uh, about the only thing we know is that episode in the temple at, at the Passover where he stayed behind and talked with the uh, experts in the law and, and impressed them with uh, his knowledge and insight. Uh, but I think, again, we have to assume that he was obedient throughout his whole life. And it's for this reason that he was said to be well-pleasing. This idea of sonship is kind of interesting because if you may remember from the book of Exodus, uh, Moses was told to go to Pharaoh and tell him that Israel was his firstborn son and that uh, Israel was to be a light to the nations. And in fact, in that task, Israel failed. But when the true, the true son came, he didn't fail. Jesus was the true son, and he completed the things that Israel as a nation didn't, didn't complete. So Jesus' baptism represented the beginning of a new phase in Jesus' life, where he aligned his life with the overall program of God in history and inaugurated the kingdom of God. Well, let's talk a little bit about where we fit into this, too. What is your life about? Jesus' life was about aligning himself and doing what God had asked him to do, which was kind of a tough role. Uh, he, it led him to Calvary. What is your life about? What is it going on? What direction is it? What road are you on? Are you on the right road? Well, what is the right road? Well, in 1 Peter 1.16, the command which quotes the Old Testament is that you should be holy because I am holy. In fact, some versions translate that word perfect. You should be perfect because I am perfect. Uh, no first century Jew would have any problem with that because they knew that the only one who was really perfect and holy was God. And this holiness, really being holy, if we really want to be what God wants us to be and well-pleasing like Jesus was, that's a pretty big task. For example, the Bible in Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth. Uh, so if we say, well, gee, I think I want to be peaceful, that's a good thing to do. Uh, can we grit our teeth and sit down and become peaceful? Or... Can we grit our teeth and become patient? Uh, these things are things that have to well up from our interior life. These things are too deep. These things are about character. These things are about our heart. And unfortunately, those are things which really are not very accessible to our will and to our determination. There was a man that uh, Tim Chester refers to in one of his books who uh, had a besetting sin. And he would commit this sin, he would repent, and he was 
He knew it was really a bad thing to do. It injured other people. And then he would do it again, and he would repent. And he had these cycles, multiple cycles of repentance and, uh, and failure. And so he went to, and he was becoming hopeless about it, even depressed. So he went to his pastor and talked to him. And what the pastor said was, you aren't hopeless enough. Because he was still trying to overcome this on his own. He didn't realize what he needed was a savior. Dallas Willard talks about uh, the low level of uh, spiritual maturity in our uh, generation. And he says, uh, most professing Christians today have felt a need and would like Christ to, heal, to help them deal with it. Now, one cannot satisfactorily lay a foundation for spiritual formation or growth in grace by approaching people in terms of the trouble that they're in. In human affairs, the thing that needs to be fixed now is really the problem. Their problem is that they have rejected God for whatever reason and have chosen to live life on their own. They've not surrendered their will to him. They do not want to do what God says, but what they think is best. And they're lost because of that. They do not know what their real needs are. They do not think of themselves as rebels and outlaws who must radically change because they're not acceptable to God. They do not think that they need the grace of God for radical transformation of whom they, who they are. But they just need a little help. They're good people, or so it seems to them. Now, becoming a disciple or apprentice of Jesus cannot be negotiated on this basis. Rather, becoming a disciple is a matter of giving up your life as you have understood it to that point. And without giving up, you cannot be his disciple. Because you will still think that you're in charge and just in need of a little help from Jesus for your project of a successful life. But our idea of a successful life is precisely our problem. In many ways, we have been disastrously wrong and need repentance and a savior. So how can we be well-pleasing to God? Well, do we know anyone who was well-pleasing and maybe we could be like him? Of course, we know Jesus was well-pleasing to God as we heard in the text at his, about his baptism. So we should repent and through faith show, allow Jesus to save us and make him like himself through his Holy Spirit. This idea of Christ-likeness and becoming like Christ to become well-pleasing to God is actually a pretty frequent idea in the New Testament. And I would just like to refer to five verses now, and this doesn't exhaust them all, but in Luke 6.40, it says that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. In Romans 8.29, it says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 4.19, until Christ is formed in you. But it gets better. It's not just a student-teacher relationship that we can have with Jesus. God tells us that as many as received him, to them he gave he the power to become the sons of God. So by belief, we can actually become children of God. 
And who could be more like a parent than their child? That's an even more intimate relation than a teacher-pupil relationship. And in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. C.S. Lewis says at one point in mere Christianity, God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like teaching a horse or turning a horse into a winged creature. So this transformation into Christ-likeness happens through repenting and aligning ourselves with God's kingdom through faith in Jesus. And if we do that, then we can become well-pleasing to God, as Jesus was. And this is really reality. Again, we talk about what's going on in the world, this whole process of salvation, and how we can align ourselves with that whole process of what God is doing in the world. If we don't do that, we're on some other direction. The truth is that everything but this program of God is static and not really ending anywhere. This is what Jesus came uh, to preach and came to live a perfect life and die on the cross and eventually come again. And this is what we were designed for. We originally were created to be the way God wants us to be. And when we deviate from that, we can't be satisfied. We can't ultimately be anything but disillusions, even going into despair. If we try to live our lives on our own terms, we're trying to be round pegs fitting in square holes. It's just not possible. Worse, all the roads except the one along God's path lead to despair and to destruction and to misery, as we saw uh, earlier in this chapter. So what I'd like to... The thing I'd like to leave you with this morning is that this repentance, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is good news. This gives us the opportunity to participate in what God is doing in the world. Thank you.